Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Campion from Bearings, and you are listening to our pilot podcast. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. This is a new initiative for us at Bearings, and we'd love your feedback. Email us your thoughts, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. On today's show, I spoke with Eric Lloyd about the private credit markets. Eric is head of Bearings Global Private Finance Group and chief executive officer of Bearings BDC. He's responsible for all things global private finance here at Bearings. That includes middle market direct lending, which we talked about today, infrastructure debt, private placements, private ABS, and more. Eric's been in the industry since 1990. And before he joined Bearings in 2013, he served as the head of market and institutional risk for Wells Fargo. He served on that firm's management committee, and he was also a member of a board of directors for Wells Fargo Securities. You know, one of the things that really struck me from this conversation today was the focus that Eric and his team really place on listening to clients and managing risk. Ultimately, in the private credit markets, it's not an asset class where you're looking to hit home runs. It's an asset class where you're really looking to manage downside risk. And uh, Eric explained, I think, in really great detail today about how he and his team accomplished that. I hope you enjoy the show. Eric Lloyd, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's jump right in. The asset class that you are active in is, uh, is private debt. It's also known by a variety of other names, private credit, uh, direct lending, middle market lending. Um, it's got a lot of different names. There are a lot of different names for this asset class, and it can be confusing to investors. The reality is it's actually quite simple. We're investing in and lending to corporations that are performing that are just small enough that they can't access the liquid capital markets like broadly syndicated loans or high yield, but are, are large enough that they're relevant to the marketplace. An example of that would be a company that has 200 to $400 million of revenue and maybe $20 million to $40 million of earnings. What's historically been the attraction for investors uh, with private credit? I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding potentially in the market that bank regulation is what caused the asset class, right? When you saw Dodd-Frank after the financial crisis, I think some people view that as that was the catalyst for the asset class. And the reality is the asset class was you know, prevalent well before Dodd-Frank or well before that type of bank regulation. Um, there's no doubt that bank regulation has been a, a tailwind for the asset class, and the asset class has benefited from that, but it's not the reason for existence within that. Um, and so the, the maturity of it really differs by region. And so I'd say the U.S., if you look at the asset class, it has been over two decades that it's been uh, an, an asset class that's been both benefited for the borrower as well as for investors. But there's no doubt, we'll talk about it probably a little bit later, that the supply of capital in North America has increased over that period of time, particularly in the last, say, five to 10 years since the crisis. Europe, the direct lending space, really came into play after the financial crisis. Yes, there were some small players prior to that, but it really came in after the financial crisis. Prior to the financial crisis, there were some mezzanine players in Europe, but very few senior debt players, whereas now there's a, a large number of senior debt-oriented funds in Europe. 
Asia Pacific for us, developed Asia, is really much further behind. Really just a handful of players in that market. So let's talk a little bit about competition and then what that's actually meant for potential returns in the asset class as well. Um, the competition in this industry right now, it's pretty fierce. Um, and that's really regardless of what region you're in and regardless of what asset class you're in. Um, there has been a large amount of institutional capital that's been raised in the asset class. The supply of M&A volume has not increased at the rate that the capital has increased. So in the most simple way, there's more capital chasing the, basically the same amount of deals. And therefore, that supply-demand imbalance creates more competition and, and, and more challenge. That doesn't mean there's not great opportunities still. It just means you have to work harder and source more opportunities to get the same amount of volume uh, as long as you maintain your discipline through that investment process. So the competitive situation in each one of those asset classes, depending on the region, it varies. But in each one, I'd say it's still competitive. And that's just the reality of the world we live in today. And I think in the global search for yield, this asset class has been one that people look to for that yield that they're looking for. Um, people talk about returns as if they're one singular uh, item. And the reality is returns are made up of uh, your base rate as well as your spread over the base rate. So let's use a senior secured loan as an example. A typical senior secured loan that has four to five turns of leverage in the U.S. today that has 20 to $30 million of EBITDA is going to be priced somewhere between LIBOR 450 and LIBOR 500. So let's use LIBOR at 450. And let's just say that's a 7 to 7.5% 7 type of return, plus you make some upfront fee, which we could address later on how we originate loans. Let's use that 7 to 7.5%. That return is reasonably consistent with the return we saw three years ago. The difference, however, is the composition of that return is much different. Three years ago, that was a 1% LIBOR floor, because we get base rate LIBOR floors in all of our deals, with a 600 over credit spread. Now, as I referenced earlier, that's a 450 to 500 over credit spread. So I think it's important for investors to really understand the composition of the return when they're looking at the asset class. That's a really good point. I think the uh, at the headline level, you hear people talking mostly about kind of all-in yields, but I think it's it's important um, to, to look at the makeup of what actually constructs that yield. So. Absolutely. That's what people pay us for, right? I mean, they pay us for an absolute return, but ultimately as credit managers, they pay us to manage that credit spread and create alpha for them in that credit spread. So you talked a little bit about credit risk. Let's cover some of the other risks that are that are facing um, the asset class right now. You know, a quick look at the headlines and understandably you can see why investors could be concerned. We've got a cycle that's 10 years uh, in at this point. We've got uh, rising interest rates. We've got trade wars. We've got Brexit. We've got, you know, potential dock weakening when it comes to covenant light transactions. It'll make your head spin. We so, got it all. It, that's right. So let's talk, let's kind of hit those kind of one by one. So let's start um, with the kind of overall length of the cycle. I mean, w what's your general feeling there? Do you think just because we're 10 years into the cycle means we're about to come to an end or what are your thoughts? Yeah, we know we're closer, right? This is an illiquid asset. So once you originate the deal and you invest in the asset, your ability to sell that asset is extremely limited. And so we underwrite every deal, assuming we're going to own that deal from the day we originate it until the day of the maturity. And that was true in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15. You keep going, right? Because we don't know when that next cycle is going to be. And so we underwrite every deal, assuming there's going to be a credit in an economic cycle. 
during the course of that investment uh, tenor. But we have to be aware that we are long in this economic cycle. We are long in this credit cycle. So that doesn't change exactly the type of deal that we do because we do what we believe is going to be attractive through all markets. We're a real through-the-cycle type of investor. It does mean that portfolio construction can be an important part of protection of capital, right? Diversification within your portfolio construction can protect you from the unknown. You referenced Brexit earlier. Um, We run some European-only mandates. And the reality is we didn't have Brexit as a risk factor four years ago. And if you have a five to seven year loan, right? And within that two years into that loan, you have something like Brexit come up. If you run a more diversified portfolio, maybe a global portfolio, or maybe just a more diversified European portfolio, you have some insulation from the unknown. So how is Brexit affecting the portfolio? Are are you you know, less likely to invest in UK companies, or are you more focused on uh, domestic producers, et cetera? How how are you thinking about that? Great question. Um, I was on a panel right after the Brexit announcement, and uh, it was about three months after uh, that vote. And the first panelist stood up and said, Brexit, much to do about nothing. Um, And I was the next person to speak, and they asked me what I thought. And I said, well, I think that's really premature. I think Brexit takes a couple couple elements. One, currency is an important part of Brexit, right? We saw European businesses that may operate across a pan-European profile. They may have costs, some in euros, some in sterling, maybe in other currencies also. And what we saw after the Brexit announcement is actually some pretty strong currency volatility between euro and sterling. And so it's not just understanding the impact of the revenue or their ability to to operate across countries. It's also understanding the cost structure and the revenue structure of each one of those companies to make sure you don't have a currency misalignment in there to the extent the company's not hedging that. Today, we're primarily investing in UK-oriented businesses. Yes, they may have some pan-European elements to them, but probably less so than they would have had four years ago for exactly the reason you referenced, because we just don't know what that Brexit outcome will be. And if we don't know what it can be, we can't underwrite the risk. If we can't underwrite the risk, we can't price the risk. And so, you know, ultimately, this asset class, uh, you referenced risks earlier, Greg, and it is exactly everything we focus on. This is an asset class that has asymmetric outcomes, right? The best case scenario is you get your principal back or the money you invested and your interest rate. That's your best case scenario, right? Your worst case scenario is you have some kind of credit problem. And therefore, you may have a potential default or even a loss within that. So this business is all about risk management, right? This business, people talk a lot about the picking up the illiquidity premium and direct direct origination, and all of that's true. But ultimately, what you're paid to do is really to manage risk. Another risk, rising rates. So we hear about that, obviously, as a concern for fixed income markets generally. Um, Let's talk about... Is that, is that an issue for private credit? Um, why or why not? Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of a, a two-edged sword. Uh, the positive for investors is if they're invested in floating rate assets, right, their return goes up. And so that's the positive for investors. The negative is the underlying company that we're invested in, their fixed charges or their ability to pay that interest is lower as that rate goes up. And I think as you, as you think of that, you have to look at that cash flow coverage relative to the interest cost of the company, because they also have to spend money on CapEx and other things in order to remain competitive in their marketplace. So today, we're focused on it. Um, covenants are an important part of that. So in all of our deals uh, that we do senior secured investing in, we have maintenance covenants. 
And really, maintenance covenants are nothing more than ability to track performance of a company on a quarterly basis. So the borrower has to represent every quarter, and we have financials that we get every quarter to analyze that they are in compliance with certain performance metrics. You know, one of the um, one of the concerns that we see is some questions around our higher leverage multiples being justified by adjustments that are being made uh, to EBITDA. It's, I'm going to guess your answer on that is by focusing on free cash flow, you can help to avoid that risk. We can help to avoid it, but your question is exactly right. Um, you know, it is an opaque asset class. And I think that's a challenge for people because you can't really look through and understand exactly what that company is. They don't file 10Ks and 10Qs that people can access and review themselves. In a lot of cases, they don't have public equity. So there's not equity research analysts following these companies like they might be on the liquid side. So there's this opaqueness of the asset class, which makes people question, well, what's behind the curtain? What is what is that right now? And the reality is we are seeing a large amount of EBITDA adjustments into credit agreements today. And so you may have a covenant that says, you know, you can't have leverage more than five turns of total debt relative to EBITDA. But if that EBITDA allows you to make adjustments for prospective cost savings or things like that, it may not be your actual cash flow. It may be your accounting EBITDA or EBITDA that that the company is able to generate. And what we focus on is what we call structuring EBITDA. And it really is what we consider to be the EBITDA that will turn into cash flow. And, and so, you know, looking at some cost savings or adjustments can make sense. Company A is buying company B. And company, they don't need two CFOs. They don't need two CEOs. They may be able to consolidate some other costs. And so we might allow for some of those cost savings because that makes sense. That's logical. And those should be kind of day one or you know within the first couple of months cost savings. The more challenging ones are the ones that are company A buys company B. And they say, we would like an adjustment because within the next 12 to 36 months, we believe our supplier uh, base will give us better prices because we're going to be purchasing more. Well, we don't know if that's going to be true or not. That's very hard to underwrite. So we would not put something like that as much into our structuring EBITDA because we don't know if that ultimately will be the case. And if so, will it turn into actual cash? Um, you mentioned covenants earlier, and uh, that's obviously been something that we've seen in headlines quite a bit lately, not only in your market, but also in broadly syndicated markets. Um, some concerns about covenant-like transactions. How are you thinking about that? You know, it's interesting. Um a lot of people in the direct lending space pound on maintenance covenants, maintenance covenants, maintenance covenants. And that's true because it's an illiquid asset. What I don't think people appreciate is in investors or really the marketplaces in the liquid part of the market, covenant light is very different than covenant light in, in the middle market, right? They have liquidity in, in the part of the broadly syndicated loan market. And so to the extent that they see a performance they don't like, they can sell that asset. In the middle market, you don't really have the ability to sell that asset. So your covenant is really your liquidity. It's your ability to have a seat at the table with the borrower to adjust things to make sure the risk return stays in check. And so on the liquid side, I actually don't have a problem with covenant light. And I think that there's a little bit of a misunderstanding that covenant light broadly is bad. And I think it's just a difference between the two markets. Um, I could make an argument in today's market uh, that 
a, a covenanted, broadly syndicated loan deal maybe is a less attractive investment than a covenant light one because maybe that company is one that had to put a covenant in because it's a less attractive borrower. Sure. I don't know. Um, but I just think that we shouldn't take covenant light and do a broad sweep across all you know credit markets and say it's bad because I think it's really different depending on the liquidity of each of those markets. You know, what about some of the opportunities? Uh, if you're an investor today, um, you know, where are you seeing the most value? Um, is it Europe? Is it the U.S.? Is it uh, developed Asia? How, do, how does it look today? So I'll probably cover it a couple of different ways. First one, I think it's important to understand, what currency are you investing in? Um, you know, all, all returns are different depending on that currency. And all you really care about as an investor is what's your net return. So I'll get, use an example. You're a U.S. dollar investor into a European investment that's floating rate. If you hedge that back to U.S. dollars, you pick up the differential basically between the base rates. Base rates are a reasonable proxy for the cost of hedging. So a U.S. A European investment that's, let's say, yielding 7% that's floating rate could yield you 8 plus percent in U.S. dollar terms. The reverse is true also. A euro-denominated de- investor investing in a U.S. investment that say has a 7% return that's floating rate, they may lose 150 or so basis points on the swap the other way. So they may only be earning 5.5%. So I think the first thing to think about is at which currency am I investing? And is that currency aligned with the net return I'm going to get in that denomination of that currency? An example would be um, we have a very strong mezzanine business in our developed Asia market. But it's a really small marketplace. So there's attractive investments in that marketplace today, but it's not something that you can do in real significant scale. Um, The flip side of that would be the U.S. first lien or senior secured market. It's the most developed broad market across all of the asset classes. And so that's going to have more opportunities for scale. Today, I would tell you that on a senior secured basis, I feel like U.S. and Europe are relatively close in their relative value. I would say on the margin, Europe's a little more attractive just because you have more of your return made up in the credit spread, as I referenced earlier, as opposed to the base rate. But the absolute return between the two markets is really similar between those two. I think that the key thing in in each one of those markets is understanding the broad part of what the capital structure is. So not all senior secured loans are created the same, as we all know, right? Different documentation, different industries, different geographies that they're in. Uh, But each one of those, I think, has attractive opportunities within them. Just can you get the scale that you want to to deploy capital? I wanted to finish up, Eric, on a question about access. And I want to think about it from two different ways. I want to think about um, from an investor standpoint, so from the clients of bearings, how are they accessing this asset class? But I also want to think about it from in terms of the actual investments themselves and how you're accessing those. So maybe can we start with how you and your team are finding these companies to invest in? Yep. So it's, all, origination is our lifeblood, right? It is the ability to source assets in order to create attractive investments. And so what do we do with that? In every region we operate, we have people on the ground um, that are calling on clients in those regions. Each region can be unique in its own uh, investment uh, attractiveness in a particular investment or an industry. So sourcing and having boots on the ground in there that understand those differences is really important. Second point I'd make on origination 
it's really about having that direct access. And, you know, we've done deals over the last three years for well over 100 private equity firms. And sourcing from a broad network of private equity firms is really important because ultimately you want to be highly selective in what you choose to invest in. And so you just want to have a good broad origination and having people that are out there consistently in front of these clients sourcing deals. We don't ever want to rely on a third party or intermediary to source deals for us. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And then from an investor's standpoint, just accessing the asset class, are there global strategies, regional strategies, you know, what are the investor's choices kind of look like in this asset class? Yeah. You know, I think that's actually in some ways the most important one. Um, You know, as I look at our business, I tell our team, we're never going to be a product pusher, right? Our first job is to really ask questions, ask the investor, what are you looking for this asset to do within your portfolio construction? A lot of ways, what are you solving for? Right? And it may be a geographic allocation. It may be an allocation relative to other fixed income. It could be an allocation relative to private equity and has a, needs a more mezzanine strategy. It could come out of their alternatives bucket. But what, what are you trying to solve for within that? And each investor and each region is different, right? We have the breadth of capital and the breadth of offerings that we can provide the access to the, to the asset class. Um, it's just right now, it's really understanding what they need. I really like your advice of listening. And uh, and on that note, I thank everyone for listening today. It's been a really insightful discussion. And, uh, and Eric, I really appreciate your time. Thanks thank very much. Thank you for much. having me. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. As I mentioned at the outset, this is a new initiative for us here at Bearings. We would love to hear your feedback. Do you like this format? Is there a way we can improve it? Send us an email at podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. Thanks again for listening.